Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with technology leaders and some of the most innovative minds in the industry to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they foresee for the future. No topic is off limits, so sit back, relax, and maybe take notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Matthew Hodgson is the co-founder of Matrix.org and CEO slash CTO of New Vector. And he thinks the way we communicate in business, government, and personally is broken, but he also has a way to fix it. He believes that the future of communication is through the decentralized web and a flexible, encrypted, open source network, which is exactly what Matrix provides. Whether it's the French government, hundreds of universities around the world or others, there is a shift happening in how people are interacting and Matrix is at the center of it all. On this episode, Matthew explains how and why all these customers are finding value in Matrix with host Avishai Sharlin and guest co-host Moshi Friedman, the head of Amdocs Ventures. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs's R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. Welcome to uh, Future of Tech. And today's session, I have two distinguished guests. I have Matthew Hodgson, and Moshe Friedman, head of Amdocs Venture. Matthew is currently serves as the technical co-founder of uh, Matrix.org and also as a CEO and CTO of New Vector. Previously served as uh, the head of unified communication in Amdocs. And back then, I believe, Matthew, the two of us met several times discussing what seems to be something that the daily practice today, which is unified communication and HD video, Maybe take us to start with, uh, besides saying hello and how are you, to those days and, and share with us a bit about your uh, background. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. And it's a um, pleasure to be um, talking um, inside Amdocs um, again. And yes, Abishai, as you say, we first um, met, I think. I think you might have been a few weeks into the job. Exactly. When, um, I just joined the company. Yeah. Yeah, no, literally had just come on board uh, when you were asked to meet with us as we were trying to validate setting up the unified communications business inside Amdocs. And um, it was a fairly unusual situation in that we had a team here in London who were specialists in VoIP. And um, I think the question was whether we could stand alone and take all of the um, soft phone um, development that we had done going and building at the time very groundbreaking voice and video over IP on iOS and Android and actually turn it into a product line for Amdocs and critically set it up as an incubated startup. So I guess your history was coming from Rad Vision at the time, if I remember, and a lot of activities in that domain. They went and shipped an opinion on whether we would be able to pull it off or not. True, true. Um... I also remember that we had a quick, quick beer over there at Chiswick. It was a nice beer. And we share some uh, snippets from our uh, common history. W- would it be right if, uh, um, to say that uh, 
this is to an extent something that was back then I, re- I remember it was for sure something revolutionary today it's like common practice and and everybody is using the uh, those kinds of technologies yeah I would say so I mean back then um, uh, I think this was about the time that Google was producing WebRTC and that was quite an interesting maneuver in that up to that point we had been selling um, a voice and video SDK that would allow any app developer to embed um, very high quality real-time communication into their apps and Google meanwhile went and acquired the company called Gips, which was a spin out of Ericsson to create this technology called WebRTC. And they acquired them for $75 million dollars and they unexpectedly gave away the entire intellectual property as open source to the world, embedding it inside Chrome and later embedding it inside Firefox and other browsers so that any web browser suddenly had the ability to do high quality voice and video. So at that point, It went from being quite a niche and groundbreaking product that we were selling large licenses to um, people to use in their apps to suddenly becoming completely commodity thanks to Google knocking the bottom out of the market. The frustrating thing is that their quality wasn't quite as good as what we have. And in fact, it's still not the best on the market. One of the reasons that Zoom is so successful these days is that they did their own thing. They didn't build on top of WebRTC. And so there is still some value there. But the, the key thing is that it has become a much more conventional thing to do voice and video calling. And particularly in today's very remote work-focused world, um, it becomes really useful and important um, to have um, sort of video and voice communications at this quality just on a day-to-day basis. So we were a bit ahead of the curve, and then the curve kind of caught up with us, and we ended up pivoting that work into building a wider unified comms product, the Amdocs UC offering, that would allow telcos um, to compete with Zoom and WhatsApp and Telegram and some Hangouts and all these other communication tools. And that was, I think, the world's most successful um, telco unified communications product. I guess uh, we now live in a slightly different world in that the um, emphasis is still more on internet-based unified comms than telco comms, but um, that is where a lot of our subsequent work on Matrix has focused. Matthew, before you joined, we were, we were chatting and, and saying, I was saying that you're one of the most mission-driven people that I know. Clearly, uh, what you're doing today at Matrix is, is different than just unified communications. Yeah, how, how are you able to, I don't say pivot, but evolve from one vision to something that is, uh, that is so mission-driven today? Maybe you can describe what that mission is for us and, and how you got there. Sure. I mean, in some ways, it's by necessity. So I think from 2012 to 2014, we focused exclusively on the Unified Comms products and for Amdocs. And we sold it successfully to some big tier one tokens such as Telecom Italia in Brazil, Tem Brazil, or Team Brazil, as they would say. And it was successful. I think we got millions of users on the platform, which was called Bla in Brazil. And we're feeling pretty happy because we deployed a carrier-grade um, solution that people were using and had good money from it, for it. However, at the time, WhatsApp had 98.6% market penetration in Brazil. Oh, I've got to beat that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, 
So we clearly needed a different strategy that even though we had an incredibly strong position going and building out a telco um, unified cons product, it occurred to us that basically we were trying to fight WhatsApp on their own battlefield, except they already had a massive, massive advantage just through network effect. I think at that point they had about 400 million users. Now they have 2 billion users on the network. So, I mean, that's getting almost as large as the phone network itself. And we felt that we were not using, uh, we needed a totally different strategy if we were going to compete at the same level. So we went and came up with this mission, which was basically to try to create the missing communication there of the web. Because the web originally was meant to be a real-time read-write environment. It should be as easy to publish data as it is to consume data. You should be able to exchange messages with anybody on the open web and have the same kind of vibrancy and developer ecosystem that has made the web this incredible thing today. Now, if you look at the web, it's a $10, $20 trillion industry supporting people like Google and Amazon and eBay and all of these other you know, the most valuable companies of the world all exist in the same ecosystem. And that does not exist for communications at all. Instead, you have all of these little silos or quite big silos like WhatsApp or Zoom or Slack or Discord or whatever it is. None of them have an open platform which you can build on top of and reach the wider population of the internet. There is just no equivalent to email or the web. So it was a bit of a moonshot, and honestly, we started thinking about it at the end of 2012, whilst already working on unified comms, thinking, hey, this is great, and it's okay, and it's great to learn how to run a business, and thanks to Amdocs, and thanks to Amdocs for giving us that opportunity. And how can we actually bust out of uh, building yet more little silos and try to take on the bigger picture? Because clearly the only way to compete with something like WhatsApp would be to create an open global network, to create an equivalent to Bitcoin relative to PayPal or um, some other payments provider or financial services. And nobody had done that. So we thought it was worth a go. We, as a team, we've been together since 2002, um, so getting on for 20 years now. And we had built on top of SIP, um, the session initiation protocol, the old school VoIP and standard. We built on top of H323, the ITU standard, H324M, as uh, I I will recall, which was the mobile circuit switch video standard. Basically, every VoIP technology we were experts in, so we thought, hey, well, how about we take everything we learned and try to do one that will be open, spanning the whole internet based on today's web technologies that any web developer who knows how to hit an HTTP URL will be able to use to send a message, receive a message, and also do VoIP or any other kind of data. So literally be the missing real-time communication there for the web. So yeah, there is a mission there to try just like I guess Tim Berners-Lee had a mission with the web to go and build a document fabric that was available to everybody and accidentally meant that it could run web applications at the same time. <laughs> Our mission is to go and build a communication layer for everybody. But it is not a philanthropic mission in its own right. We do have a nonprofit foundation, the Matrix.org Foundation, which looks after the protocol and the standard in the network. 
But as uh, Avishai said, I'm also CEO of New Vector, which is a startup, a for-profit startup building on top of this. And we see ourselves to be a bit like Netscape in the early days of the web. The first commercial company going and putting a human face on this very abstract, geeky idea and making it something that normal users can use and hopefully making some revenue and profit at the same time. So it's um, on one level, yeah, ridiculously mission driven. And it's really fun to get up in the morning <laughs> and know that we need to build a secure encrypted communication fabric. Um, for the benefit of everybody. So, for instance, I had the German government phone up on Saturday saying, we are closing all of our schools on Monday, and we need to take every um, school in the state of Schleswig-Holstein, which is up in the north of Germany, and uh, we would like to get them on Matrix um, to have their online education. So video conferencing, chat rooms, um, sharing notes, and having offline collaboration between the teachers and the pupils and all that sort of thing. And we've got two days to do that. And suddenly, you know, we, mostly, you know, we corralled the team together and they've been working all weekend on getting them set up with a highly scalable wow. um, conference wow. system. And, and part of that is, I guess, a, a paid opportunity for new actor, but also the reason they're coming to us is because they want to control their own communications. They want to be able to run it themselves. They're running it out of data centers in Hamburg, which is local to where they are, which due to data protection is a necessity when you're dealing with the privacy of the kids uh, and indeed the public sector workers. And we are the only solution out there that allows people to run their own communication infrastructure securely, whilst also participating in a global network. So the kids in those schools can talk to other ones in Germany. They can talk to ones in France. There are universities. I heard that Mines.edu, the Colorado School of Mines, has also gone on to the Matrix and for uh, their shutdown that kicks in on Monday also. Although there, it was done by the students rather than by us. Um, wow. So it shows you the opportunity of having cool. a big network that people can get involved in. So Matthew, uh, maybe, maybe one step back. Um, So we've just mentioned one example, which is a good thing, I believe, uh, to, to better understand or clear the difference between the infra and the solution that you are uh, spearing, as opposed to uh, alternatives, no need to mention other names, just, you know, the concepts behind them. So the same phenomena or the same solution that you just brought up for the German government can be treated in various ways. What will be the difference in them approaching you guys as opposed to other solutions out there? So the key three differences that we provide is data sovereignty so that they can run this themselves. They could, they could run it in the cloud, they could ask us to run it, or they can just run it in their own cloud, or they can run it on-premise. There is complete flexibility. Just like on email, I could use Gmail, I could run Exchange, I could run my own mail server, it's up to me. So that's the, the first big thing. Secondly is encryption. We have incredibly strong state-of-the-art um, end-to-end encryption uh, derived from Signal. I'm sure many people are familiar with Signal as an encrypted messenger now. And we took their core technology. We re-implemented it as a Apache-licensed open source project. And then we extended it to support large group communications. Um, and then finally, you are participating in an open network. So if you were, say, uh, using Slack 
for instance, or teams um, to communicate within a given school, it's tough. And I mean, nowadays you can communicate just about to other Slacks, you might be able to federate with other teams, but you're still stuck inside a single vendor, a single deployment like Slack or Office 365. Whereas in Matrix, um, you are accessing the entire open network, which has got at the moment 15.2 million um, users in it and about 40,000 deployments. And some of those are massive, like the entirety of the French public sector now uses Matrix as its communication tool rather than using um, uh, Telegram and WhatsApp as they were before. Or it could be to a technical organization like Mozilla. So Mozilla, I guess, is ironically what's left of Netscape these days. And they just um, transferred all of their communication onto Matrix um, over the last few weeks. Um, or it could be um, to other universities and schools. So in Holland, the Netherlands, I should say, there is an organization called SURF, who is the public sector um, academia provider. And they do supercomputing and email and IT for all of the universities. I think they have 80 universities in their portfolio. And they provide matrix as part of their offering now as well. So, I mean, that hopefully gives a flavor of why Germany is talking to us rather than throwing lots of money at Slack or Zoom or Microsoft um, for an alternative, more conventional offering, more legacy offering, I should say. Okay, so we talked a lot about technology. Let's pause a bit and ask you uh, some personal, you know, uh, items. Um, a bit about your history, you know, where, where, where did you study? Were you always based in the UK? Have you uh, ever worked somewhere else? Uh, I know that you are flying a lot, not now, but you know, in previous days, but uh, give, us, give us some background about your, uh, you know, how did you meet technology and how did you come uh, to the point where it? Sure, um, wow, okay. Um, so I started off um, from an education perspective at the University of Cambridge, where a lot of the Matrix and core team um, met at university or through friends of friends. I was originally doing physics. However, I might have made a mistake by shortly before joining university, I took a year out and I went to work in Bahrain and started a company um, there back in the time um, Bahrain was ruled by the Emir Al-Khalifa um, and they allowed fully foreign-owned companies at the time. They had no income tax and they had no corporation tax from memory. And so it was quite an interesting economy to do a startup. And so I did it with two other English people who had ended up there as expats doing a marketing startup, basically the yellow pages for Bahrain, which is kind of ironic given how Mbox started out its life. Yeah. Um, however, we did it um, as a multimedia CD-ROM because this was, what, 97 or 98 or something, and the web was not as rich as it was today. And we reasoned that the only way to get videos of the Meridian and all sorts of other sort of hotels and things and have nice glossy marketing material would be to hand out a CD-ROM to everybody entering the country on Gulf Air. So, I did that. It was kind of fun to be CTO of a startup, age 17 or 18 or however old I was. I think I might have been one of the youngest business directors in the Middle East um, at the time. And then I went to university, and allegedly to do a physics degree. And it turns out that university isn't that um, 
how can I put it, sympathetic if their students are also trying to run a startup in the Middle East. So ended up spending a um, slightly awkward time on my physics until they very strategically said, hey, Matthew, this is great, but perhaps you should do computer science. At which point it was fine. And so I moved over to computer science, got a degree, left, and um, at about the same time, I actually moved on. The political situation in Bahrain had changed. So you mean if you study physics, you can't do startups at the same time, but computer science is something that you, along the way, you can do also startups and other things. This is very oh, encouraging to all of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, um, I think uh, I don't want to get into too much trouble with the university if they pick up on this 20 years later. I think you're definitely not allowed to work whilst you're a student, let alone run a company, um, uh, at least for Cambridge specifically. I meant more something like, you know, as a side job, you can do many things while studying computer science because it's not the real science and physics is real science, so you can't do anything. I wouldn't say that. I'd say the computer science is definitely real science, but it does help if it's aligned with the thing that you're doing as your day job. Whereas, because, you know, the context switch between building technology for, in the end, I think there were three separate startups, actually, at university. The one in Bahrain, there was one that is very similar to Matrix that was called Silicon Archive or a unified communication architecture that was kind of dreams of how you could have a unified platform for exchanging conversations which is not that dissimilar to what we do now. And then the third one, ironically, was a Lord of the Rings website, because that's how cool I am. And all of them were done throughout university. But it's a lot easier to be messing around building, I think, the Lord of the Rings website was one of the top 100 busiest websites in the world in 99 to 2001, when the films were being made for better or worse. Really? And it was fascinating to learn how to run a really high-volume website whilst also doing your degree. And I did that for six months actually after graduating before I then met up with the guys who I basically work with today who were also at university to go and start working in telecommunications. So all of them are uh, computer geeks or some of them came from uh, physics as well? Um, good point, actually. People were all over the place and quite a lot of uh, mathematicians um, a couple of computer scientists, but not that many. I think they, we or they, I don't know, I kind of half consider myself a physicist. Computer scientists were in the minority. And so, yeah, a lot of mathmos, as they get called, and, um, and some engineering people as well. So it was um, basically friends of friends who knew each other. And the company started, as many startups do, by people hiring their mates in their year at university who they know to be good, and then the people in the year below, and then the people in the year below hire the people they know in the year below in their year. And um, I'm afraid it started off quite nepotistically with a whole bunch of people who already knew each other as being competent at university. Good. Moshe, I, I, I mentioned the, uh, the beer time with Matthew. How did you meet uh, Matthew? How, what was your uh, first encounter? So um, our first uh, our first face to face was actually uh, also over alcohol uh, down the block from uh, the new offices. There's a nice whiskey shop where uh, where Matthew helped uh, helped us choose whiskeys from all over the world, which was great. It seems to be a recurring theme here. I'm not sure I like how this is being characterized. Yeah, it, appear, it, 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 it appears that if all encounters with you, Matthew, are around alcohol, I'm not sure that. Uh, this is the, uh, you know, people listening to the podcast may uh, may feel that this is what you're doing during the day, you know. 
taking people to drink. Yes. No, tragically, we don't have a, a, a bar here. We do have a beer fridge, actually, but <laughs> it's only for last Friday of a month. And, but although perhaps uh, it might explain how we did so well at recruiting so many people from university if um, many of them can't remember their interviews. So, I mean, what can I say? I don't think that we have a particular alcohol-heavy culture. But certainly <laughs> in the day, it's possible that people might have taken a bit of their student lifestyle and just transposed it into um, the workplace. But nowadays, we're all grown up and responsible. For sure. And Matthew, how, how do you balance? I mean, you, you're clearly you know, going through your personal history. It's great to hear how, uh, you know, the, how the anecdotes kind of build a story, how the, each individual anecdote builds a story along the way. Yeah, how do you balance that that storyline, which became the mission, with with building a business? You know, it's, it, you don't see it every day. You know, you see a lot of missions and you see a lot of businesses. And then, you, you know, I'm, we talk a lot internally about Google's mission of do no harm as being as being a lot of fluff and not not really violated more than it's as you could say. Uh, is you know uh, is violated more than it's kept. But yeah, how do you balance? It's really hard for other companies to balance mission and commercial. Yep. How, how do you balance that as you've as you've grown, uh, you know, into Germany and into Holland and and into France across the world? Yeah, no, I mean, it's an excellent question. I think it's quite unusual in the way in which we are trying to balance it. I mean, going back to the analogy of the web, you have two completely separate units responsible to the uh, responsible for the early days of the web. You had Tim Berners-Lee and, uh, and CERN and the Worldwide Web Consortium. And then completely separately, you had Mark Andrews in entirely different competing outfits Whereas we're now what, five, six, we have two totally separate legal entities, the Matrix.org Foundation and UVAC. So first of all, with an awful lot of legal going and working with the community in Matrix, which you know, has got thousands of developers in it now and hundreds of different companies building different products and trying to establish the ground rules for what the kind of charter of the foundation should be. It felt a bit like being Hamilton, going and trying to write the constitution, as it were, <laughs> for, for the foundation. And we, you can go and read it at matrix.org slash foundation and go for it bullet point by bullet point, trying to identify the things that the foundation tries to do, which is to be neutral to anybody building on top of the technology, make it available to everybody as an open platform and as an open network. And critically, we went, myself and Amandine, my co-founder on Matrix, and we used to run the Yandox Unified Communications Unit together. She is the MBA responsible business person. I'm the geek playing with computers and talking too much. And um, what we did was to put ourselves in the minority of the foundation. So we have five directors who we call guardians, and the upper three are from the wider industry and have no connection or interest whatsoever in New Vector as a startup. So we deliberately handed over control of the foundation to the wider community with these That's guys really cool. as the kind of gatekeepers or the, the, the safety net. And one of the key things is for them to protect the ecosystem from ever being dominated or sabotaged by a commercial player, including us today and including us in the future. Because we hope that just like the web, there is room for lots of big players. And if the web had been dominated by, say, AT&T or Google or somebody 
right at the beginning, they would never have had the they same. They would never have gotten to where it is. Yeah, never. So that, uh, in terms of the mission, that's what we've been trying to build for Matrix okay. to make them sure that nobody can sabotage it, including ourselves, or separately going and providing software as a service and professional services on top of um, Matrix as a paid offering uh, and hoping that other people do as well, which they do. So I have uh, one observation and one question. So uh, the Guardians concept probably taken from uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, Guardians of the Ring. Uh, um, hopefully. <laughs> so I will, I, I, will not, I will not ask who is the Lord of the Ring, but uh, can you, you, you mentioned openness, you mentioned um, decentralization. Um, can you take us through the concept of the decentralized web as you see it? Um, what what's behind it and what's your kind of vision and, and dream? Sure. Um, I mean, so Matrix is, of course, a decentralized communication protocol, letting all these different deployments talk to one another without there being any central point of control or authority within the network. And as such, it's the opposite of, say, Slack, where everything is just controlled by one company sitting in Silicon Valley, and we see on the web, ironically, today's web is decentralized um, in that there are lots of different websites and different vendors and different servers, different browsers, different properties out there. So the web today is decentralized. However, we've been seeing the pendulum swing more and more to it being controlled by a handful of very big players to the detriment of everybody else. So Facebook infamously created their internet.org initiative there is a curated subset of the internet approved by them. Um, Google occasionally comes up with things like AMP or their new email changes, which give, try to give them a disproportionate level of control over the, you know, basically building a layer on top that is controlled by them. Microsoft infamously went uh, on a roll with Internet Explorer, trying to make IE6 the kind of synonymous with the web and make it almost a Microsoft project. Deliberately or otherwise, that was the direction it was going. And that is incredibly dangerous to have any single company with that amount of control over something as fundamental as the internet or the web. And uh, sadly, with Facebook and um, other centralized social networks, you can see the kind of abuse firsthand that, that can happen. That if you have a single company controlling a huge chunk of how people communicate, then that company might start to optimize for engagement over quality and be more interested in addicting its users to come back and keep clicking on ads and viewing more ads rather than ever considering whether this is for the benefit of the end user themselves. And we famously with Cambridge Analytica and other um, interesting uh, privacy breaches and almost um, issues with propaganda, fake news, and information dissemination on Facebook, where they have clearly just optimized to show people the thing that will shock them the most and get them the most engagement, can end up being an existential threat to civilization, frankly, in terms of getting people in a position where they are um, tearing each other apart, going and believing everything they read on Facebook, where the information feed that they've been given is the one that was intended to provoke the biggest reaction and get them to come back for more. So uh, 
this was completely innocent, I believe, on Facebook's side. They just wanted to optimize for growth, and um, they had the investors wanting, and the public after the IPO, wanting to get the most advertising revenue. So how do we do that? We can show people the most um, salacious content, and um, we do it completely algorithmically. It's not even a conscious human decision. We just look at what people started clicking on, and we feed them more of it. And all that happens is that the humans paint themselves into a terrible corner, <laughs> and you end up with some very toxic um, discourse happening. And that is a classic example of the danger of a centralized ecosystem. So what we're trying to do is almost re-decentralize control, pulling it back so that there can be no single entity optimizing for ad revenue or retention, and instead let everybody play their own rules. If you want to build something on Matrix and sell ads and optimize for it, go for it. But then you have a marketplace which can balance out. Somebody else can provide a different offering, which might be paid rather than the users actually explicitly pay rather than being the product themselves and may the best product win. You go and re-level it and have an ecosystem where you can have a plurality of different philosophies and approaches. And um, I think that is a massively more healthy situation to be in than have a centralized approach. And everybody else working in the decentralized space now, whether that are their cryptocurrencies, whether that is decentralized social networks like Mastodon, decentralized communications like Matrix, decentralized forums like Ether, which is a peer-to-peer -peer version of Reddit. Uh, all of this is based around the idea of removing any single central authority from the mix so that the humans can make up their own uh, minds and make their own mistakes and companies can make their own mistakes rather than everybody being beholden to the errors of one great big outfit like Facebook. And it just also provides a lot more opportunity for everybody else. Yeah, I hear you. It's interesting how communication, how, as, you, as you painted the picture, how communication is the basis for a lot of what you're building. We're recording this in the, in the middle of a corona outbreak and you know, I've got my, my kids downstairs doing uh, e-learning all of a sudden for the first time. And, you know, we're doing this on Zoom because we can't be in the same room as, as flights have been curtailed. So it's, it's interesting. When you built this, did you, think, did you think digital communication would be as pervasive as it is and as accepted as it is today? Or did you, did you make a bet? Um, we, I think we took a bet, and honestly, back in the early days when we were doing video telephony, um, one of the guys quit, and he was responsible for all of our H324M stuff, all of our mobile video, and his reason for quitting was he just didn't believe that anybody would have a video call, and he'd been building, you know, he was absolutely ahead of the curve building this for three, four years, and you know, this must have been 10, 12 years ago. The takeoff, I know that the quality at the moment is awful. It's like 10 frames a second on something the size of a postage stamp. But you know, in the future, they're going to do it because they do it on Star Trek. And Star Trek is the future. So obviously, it's going to happen in real life. And it, But honestly, it was a bet because video is strange. Even now, I'm staring at the camera on my laptop rather than looking at your video because I'm trying to maintain line of sight with you. But if I went yeah. and looked at your eyes instead, yeah. you get this horrible cognitive dis dissonance where I'm randomly staring at your chest. And why am I staring at your chest? <laughs> yeah. My eyes are up here. My eyes are up here. <laughs> and, and we just don't have that um, uh, technology available to us. So I always assume that particularly gaze correction, as it's called, 
was going to be a showstopper because people would never get used to the weirdness of looking at people on right. a conference who right. to be staring at their chest right. all the time. Right. In practice, people have got over it and have got used to it. It's a bit like people get used to the lag on VoIP or the weird breakups that you sometimes get on VoIP if you have bad connectivity. So it was a bet, and I'm kind of glad that the, we predicted correctly. Otherwise, it would have been a lot of wasted time on the video side. <laughs> For sure. But That's really cool. I guess what we haven't predicted is obviously the shift from it being a really useful thing that can really help your business to literally being an existential requirement. And that yeah. was you know, the, the pitch I made to our team um, as we transitioned this morning or are transitioning to being fully remote until this whole um, pandemic blows over and saying, hey, guys, you know, it's an interesting time for us because suddenly remote communication is no longer nice to have, but absolutely existential for everybody. And the race is up to see who can go and provide that technology. Really good point. So I have a rather uh, philosophical question and a down-to-earth one. So the down-to-earth one would be, what would you advise, let's say, the, the telcos of the world in terms of... Uh, moving forward when it comes to the matrix concept or the decentralized concept. This is the more down-to-earth. And the philosophical one, or let's say the, um, call it the naive one, is it's, it's, it's cool that you have this concept, but reality shows, you know, that uh, at the end of the road, you mentioned some of the names with 2 billion users versus 40 million. Um, so do you really believe that this 40 million can grow to 2 billion? Um, or, or is it just, you know, this uh, endless uh, founder in you that uh, keeps uh, visioning, you know, uh, a, a nice future, but at the end of the road, the Giants will win the, will win the game. And, and uh, as, as much as we want it, it will be like a, a play, but a play which is very contained to a small group of few tens of millions of people that still care. I mean, excellent, excellent questions. Um, so from a telco perspective, speaking probably with my matrix.org hat on, and I'm not sure what Amdocs' um, official position is on this at the moment. One of the reasons we built um, Matrix is that with Amdocs UC, we were trying to sell it to telcos. And at the time, RCS, Rich Communication Services, was the official thing that the GSMA was pushing as a way to do richer communication on top of the PSTM. And we, in fact, implemented it in the UC product. We implemented RCS 5.1, integrating it with the stuff that subsequently became Matrix. And I'm afraid to say it really wasn't a great experience. There were many, many, many issues with RCS as a technology at the time. For instance, it's very tight dependency on IMS that required you to have had a very successful IMS rollout. And the fact that standards had been built somewhat by committee and various different players. And Matrix was actually a very deliberate knee-jerk reaction to say, if you were doing something like RCS, but just not using any of the telco stack and instead using a web stack, what would it look like? How can you build a global network like the PSTM but on top of the internet? And so that was our starting point. Interestingly, after we span out of Amdocs to set up Nivax uh, as an uh, independent company to focus on Matrix, we started having telcos come to us, particularly people who we had been pursuing as unified comms unsuccessfully. Specifically, Elisa, the tier one telco in Finland, went and said, hey guys, we want to roll out a unified communications product for half the country, which in fact is now going live as we speak. 
it's gone through various iterations and funding cycles and things, but it's finally out the door as of um, uh, right now, I think this month, they're going live. And um, we see that there is an opportunity here for these more internet-style approaches, and it's complementary to the PST app. You can have bridges between um, you know, SS7 and the conventional E164 numbering system and the phone network, as well as this brave new world on the internet. And I see it very much like a bank getting involved in Bitcoin. And we see that there are initiatives and consortiums of major financial services people, whether it's you know, Goldman's or even JP Morgan, going and getting involved in the slightly crazy world of decentralized finance. And similarly, we see that there are telcos out there who want to get ahead of the curve and have concerns about RCS, particularly whether it is a Trojan horse from Google in terms of them trying to take over the own network infrastructure and instead come to us. And um, I think we've got three or four telco conversations happening now where people have come to us to say, hey, how can we roll this out and get involved and be both a matrix carrier as well as a PSTN carrier? So I obviously would hope that more people will come and do that. The key difference is that they come to us now. Back when we did Undocs UC, we went to MWC and you know, I'd see you there every year, every show and catch up and we would go and try to tell the telcos that no, you must buy Undocs UC from Undocs. And uh, we would push it to them and they would say, hang on, but we want to have pure RCS, except it doesn't really exist or work, but that's what we want. And it was always a little bit of an awkward conversation as we sold to that. Whereas now the tokens are coming to us and we hope that they will continue to come to um, us as people, as you basically see a purely organic model as it grows. And we're up, I think, threefold over the last year. So we're up at 14, 15 million users now, but that's literally tripled in the last year alone and it tripled the year before that. So we've got a, a nice exponential curve of growth happening that people will want to get involved. They want to come on board. And that isn't just the enthusiastic founder in me, always wanting <laughs> to believe my own or drink my own Kool-Aid. It's just looking at the numbers of growth and seeing the people doing it. Before you go to the next one, so Moshe, uh, I see a telescope behind you, and uh, I was wondering when you looked into the uh, into the web galaxy and found this star called uh, Matrix and Matthew. What what did what what was your uh, vision when when you first hooked to those guys? The vision vision for for our investment and our continuing support is first of all is uh, we're, uh, we like mission driven. Companies, you know, mission-driven companies attract extraordinary talent. People who believe in something tend to work a lot more and smarter. And uh, you get to bring people who you can you can recruit above your weight with mission-driven companies. And uh, so that's something that we that we literally fell in love with the the drive. The the other element that that we continue to be super excited about is th- this idea of freeing communication, uh, giving it back to to the people is is something that is extremely powerful in a in a security focused environment like we have today, privacy focused and security focused. You know, who are these people who have access to all of our communication? Why don't we? take it back. And uh, there's an element of privacy and security 
that is just going to get stronger and stronger as companies get bigger, as these Goliaths get bigger and bigger, that we think, uh, you know, to quote a co-investor of ours in a different company, there's real product zeitgeist fit uh, with what Matrix is doing. It really aligns with, with how I think people feel about the digital world going forward. So to an extent, you see Matthew at the modern... David fighting the Goliath of the world. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that, that was a good story. So I think that, that, that I, I like the Netscape analogy. Uh, I think he's kind of a combination of Netscape and the Internet in one um, with a big vision, uh, which, which is really exciting. Okay. So now let's go back to you, Matthew. So um, you're about to address the... Uh, The naive aspect of, of uh, trying to uh, to beat the Goliaths of the world with your uh, slingshot yeah I mean I guess we are depending a lot on the network effects that we are basically the only open network out there for communication and as it's not just a mission for us as a open source project or us as a startup on top of that open source project. It's a mission for the entire community in Matrix who see it very similarly to a movement like um, Linux was. And another good analogy is the transition from the old commercial Unixes like um, AIX and IRX and Solaris going over to use Linux in the 90s. And if you look at market share, uh, they actually swung over almost 98% in the space of two years. It shows the power of if you have something that is open and free and interoperable and has a lot of very enthusiastic, excited techies going and building on top of it, thinking it's the most exciting thing ever, then you can suddenly displace entire civilizations. Now, if in, I forget when the precise years of this were, but I think it happened in 95 to 97 or something in that time frame, possibly 97 to 98. But literally at one point, everybody's on Solaris buying their big Sun Enterprise servers Buying stuff from Silicon Graphics, running IRX, going getting these HP boxes, running HP UX, or these IBM RS6000s running AIX. And the idea that they might ever fall from grace would be unthinkable because everybody would go and buy those things. And literally two years later, everybody is buying really cheap crap PCs running Linux. And we yeah. think there is a scope for a really similar transition um, here. Not two years, probably five, ten years. But um, just because... We have an ideology on our side of wanting to give control back to people. And it's almost a, a, a bottom-up approach where you have Greenfield's activity um, from uh, open source enthusiasts saying, oh, don't use Slack, don't use Teams, you should be on Matrix. And then also a bottom-down approach from particularly governments who say, hang on, I, I don't really want my communications to be sitting in Silicon Valley. I'm French. I want it to sit in Paris. I want it to be in my own data centers. And between the two, we hope to get more and more people, basically the, uh, the people in the middle, saying, well, hang on a second. I'm hearing this from here and I'm hearing this from there. And if I'm going to talk to people in government, then I need to be on the same system. And it hopefully spreads throughout society. It's a big if, but you know, <laughs> I have to be an enthusiastic member. We've started with your, uh, with your example about the German uh, government using now metrics. Do you see now the uh, corona phenomena pandemic as, as something that will boost uh, the metrics exception and the vision of this uh, decentralized uh, 
open uh, capabilities? It can. It has amazing potential to do, unfortunately, for the worst reasons, of course. Um, the thing that will hold us back, honestly, and as Moshe will tell you, I tend not to necessarily be a wildly enthusiastic founder, but I tend to be a bit more cynical and self, um, uh, self-critical. And I'd say that by far our biggest risk here is that whilst the technology of Matrix is great, the applications built on top of it, particularly Riot, which is our flagship app that we build as new Vexer, has still not quite got the same level of polish and user experience that people come to expect from Slack or Zoom or Hangouts or whatever it might happen to be. And in some ways, it's a slightly frustrating situation that if that was in place, it should be a complete no-brainer for every university and school and business in the world to be coming over to a matrix solution rather than throwing more money into Zoom or Slack. So that is, it's the biggest opportunity we've had yet, unfortunately. So I'm almost using it as a rallying cry for the team to say, hey guys, if we can get our ducks in a row, then this could be transformative for uptake of the network. But until then, it's only people who are real enthusiasts for the technology, like universities, particularly Germany and et cetera, who are coming to us. Stanford phoned up yesterday, they're asking, and they'd be fun people to get across the line. Wow. Well, can I ask a totally unrelated question? Sure. And we talked about Star Trek and, and Lord of the Rings as, as, as uh, muses or uh, uh, areas of, of inspiration for me. What are you watching now, Matthew? And what gives you, how do you see, you know, what's giving you the inspiration for the next five, 10 years? Because it's interesting how media, how, how global media creates innovation, feeds innovation over decades, right? We're all talking about, you know, you know, beam me up, Scotty, after 20, 30, 40 years, right? Uh, so what, 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 where do you find your inspiration today in mass media? Well, what should we be tuning into in Netflix nowadays? <laughs> so good, good science fiction really does inspire um, real science. And it's this very strange virtuous circle that you see where people like Arthur C. Clarke going and inventing the concept of satellites and mobile phones, you know, 30, 40 years, and then the scientists say, well, I guess we kind of owe it to manage the expectations of humanity that we do need to have video conferencing that works. We do need to have holograms and everything else. In terms of what I'm watching and reading at the moment, honestly, I don't have that much time, um, (laughs) thanks to um, Ah. the all-consuming depth of Matrix and um, Neovaxer. But that said, on the science fiction side of things, I probably wouldn't go to film as particularly inspirational right now. Although I have to say for my sins that Ready Player One was quite interesting, both in book and film mode, to see a good vision. The the book is much better. Yeah, but but I agree. Um, By the way, we we might find ourselves in the the Game of Thrones, uh, you know, if uh, things will continue this way. Yeah, I'm not sure it cuts the sci-fi, but certainly <laughs> political sci-fi. It's political sci-fi. Matthew, on our kind of wrapping up and, and finishing on on a personal basis, uh, we spoke about a lot of spark and enthusiasm and stuff coming as to work as an entrepreneur. What about the downside of being an entrepreneur? What about the uh, those moments that you are thinking maybe this guy with the H three two four uh, was right. 
Yeah, good question. Um, I think when when we started Matrix, and uh, I actually reached out to a guy who supervised me at Cambridge um, back in the second year. There's a guy called Ian Pratt, and he went and created Zen the, in his research group at Cambridge, the virtualization product. And he set up a startup, which he eventually sold to Citrix for billions of dollars. And I kind of kept in touch with him because he was a good mentor back when he was just uh, running um, the systems research group. And he actually mentored us on an instant messaging platform that we built as a project in, in actually the third year. And I said to him, hey, in thinking of doing this, do you have any advice? And uh, do you want to seed invest? He didn't. <laughs> and um, <laughs> his advice, though, was actually very, very useful, which was to say, hey, all I have to say to you is that the highs will always seem much, much higher than they really are. And the lows will always seem much, much lower than they really are. And you should just... Yeah go and weather it and just keep going. And certainly the lows can be pretty miserable. Um, there have been points where funding has been challenging due to the unusual mission-driven nature of the project, um, particularly for our Series A. I think we spoke to 30, 40 funds, and almost every one of them was said, but hang on, you are doing something like Slack, but your business model is not the same as Slack. How can this ever be successful? We invest in patterns, and the pattern says that Slack just IPO'd and is great, and therefore we need other things identical to Slack. And it was, I mean, I, perhaps we were just talking to the wrong people, but eventually that can get pretty frustrating, and you see your money going down in the bank, you see your runway coming to an end, and wonder whether you're going to find the right people. But um, uh, so far, we've managed to uh, you know, to wriggle out of any tight corners, but at the time, the stress levels can be absolutely massive. And whilst I wish I could say that uh, we all have a constant you know, positive expression and um, say, oh, uh, it's going to be fine and believe in ourselves, no, everybody's just human. And I have to sit down with the team and say, hey, guys, you should probably let, I should probably let you know we've got like three months of money left now. And we were on three months' notice, and so that's what we've been. So we've had a couple of near misses and also deals which have gone south or just plain old screw-ups where things have been dropped on the floor, which are pretty miserable. But then we also have times when the French government phones up and says, hey, we think you're great. We want to roll you out to 5 million users. And we say, okay, we must be doing something, right? Perfect. So for me, I think I will adopt the, uh, after all, we're all humans. I think that uh, this is a great, uh, a great line. Uh, it was a pleasure meeting you, Matthew, once again, next time, hopefully face to face. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's um, great to catch up again, have a show. And um, thank you for enduring my waffling. Sure. And Moshe, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Abishai. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.